This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. This episode of This Week in HPC is brought to you by DDN, the leader in parallel storage and data management for AI, big data, and HPC use cases at scale. Visit ddn.com. Cray launches cluster store ED1000. Did Google achieve quantum supremacy? It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research, distributed in partnership with HPC Wire. I'm Addison Snell with Intersect 360 Research, joined by HPC Wire's John Russell. And John, this week in HPC, we got an interesting storage launch from Cray. Um, it has been a, an interesting week for Cray. They've introduced the cluster store E1000 which is part of um, a fuller remake of their entire portfolio. When they made the announcement this week at a press pre-briefing, they were uh, making a point that this is sort of the final piece of the puzzle in their Exascale Era portfolio. And they're making, going, taking great pains to define the Exascale Era as not just system size, but the capability of uh, combining both HPC workflows and, uh, and AI. And of course, in in storage, those two worlds actually have very different demands. One, you know, handles sequential files pretty well. The other one um, is really dependent on small uh, I/O short files. So they've done a lot to sort of pull all of that capability together into the single uh, product. You know a whole lot more about the storage world than I. What's your take? You know, I think this is a good launch from Cray with Cluster Store. Now, we're familiar with the Cluster Store line going back to when it was part of Xyratex, which then became part of Seagate, and then Cray was one of the OEMs for that when Seagate stopped doing Cluster Store. Cray has now taken on Cluster Store engineering and enhanced it with the E1000 under this banner of new storage for a new era. And I think they have a good point that we've talked about the merger of computation in the Exascale era, looking at not only traditional HPC, but where are we with analytics? Where are we with machine learning? And how do you balance compute for all of those sorts of workloads? They've addressed that with their Shasta platform going into these large exascale deployments in the DOE. Now they're addressing the data side with the cluster store E1000. Again, talking about how do the needs of those workloads start interplaying with each other. At the core of this, they have what they call new cluster store data services which is uh, intelligent workflow accelerating orchestration is what they call it in terms of how they manage the data flow across the different components. This is combined with uh, how they package the media, how they combine it with uh, the Cray slingshot top of rack switches, which are 200 gigabits per second. And then it's all based on top of uh, Lustre. So the the interesting thing here to me is is not just the components, but also how they talk about data tiering. They really talk about Flash quite a bit together with the uh, the uh, spinning disk components. And it's those intelligent data management features that I think maybe not right away at first when things will be a little more manual, but over time, getting to where you have more dynamic data tiering in the cluster store environment. I think that's really where they're headed with this announcement as they talk about storage for the Exascale era. It's a wholly new design controller. It uses PCIe 4.0. Uh, and they've decided to use the uh, the latest AMD uh, Rome uh, generation processor in it. So again, a long-term relationship there between Cray and AMD. They've used uh, AMD chips for for many years. 
And I did see that the uh, the first products, I believe, are going to be out in early access the uh, before the end of 2019, and then general uh, production, general shipment in uh, in 21, uh, 20, excuse me, 2020. So uh, close at hand and a big move for them. I agree. Yeah, a good point with regard to their partnership with AMD. That's been paying dividends now in multiple areas. And then as you talk about the timeline, the very interesting thing that happens, of course, is Cray becomes part of HPE. In fact, they've they've already closed that deal. It's just they haven't quite integrated the lines of business yet. And it'll be interesting to hear what the two companies or now the one merged company has to say about the strategy when we get to SC19 in a couple of weeks. But with regard to that, uh, this product going into HPE, I have uh, thought for a while that if HPE has an Achilles heel in the HPC space, it's been, you know, they've been relatively strong on the compute side with uh, with their uh, SGI heritage as well as the HPE Apollo servers. But the, the weakness has been in data management and high-performance storage. They have got some interesting partners such as Weka IO that they can bring to the party. But, but having a flagship high-performance uh, scalable data management platform is something that HPE has been missing. I think bringing Cluster Store in from Cray, uh, given a little care and feeding or maybe even different HPE brands, This could have a wider appeal in a lot of scalable uh, data center markets beyond the ones that Cray has traditionally served. So it'll be interesting to see how that carries forward. And we look forward to hearing more at supercomputing. Now, another topic that we're going to be talking a lot about is quantum computing. And also this week in HPC, we've had more news on the quantum front with Google claiming that it has achieved quantum supremacy. It's a... That's a fascinating story, and it's an area that I look at in some detail. I think of this sort of in three things, uh, three areas. You know, what happened? um, Is it important? And what's next? So let's start with what happened. So apparently a paper was leaked early on on the NASA website, and it was seen by someone uh, from Europe, actually. And the whole uh, world, the quantum community was bubbling about it. It it was a, a Google effort to reach quantum supremacy using their latest chip, and then it was quickly pulled down. So the mystery, you know, persisted. I actually reached out and no one would would say anything about it from Google. Last week, uh, finally, the paper came out and it was, I think, the cover story for the 150th anniversary issue for Nature. So an important paper. And and it uh, looks like the work is is compelling. What um, what Google did is it it ran a sort of random circuit. Uh, And the reason it did that was really just trying to prove the case that one its chip, its Sycamore chip, was actually doing quantum things in a predictable way, which it turned out it was. And two, it could do a problem that you can't feasibly do on classical um, computers. So it it did this first on the chip, um, it generated a kind of a random number, if you will, and then it ran some simulations on Summit to see how long it would take uh, Summit in particular, but supercomputers in general, um, to complete the task. And so the Sycamore chip did it in 200 seconds, and the uh, it looked like the uh, simulation said that it would take uh, 10,000 years on Summit. So a clear difference, and they were, this was hailed as achieving 
uh, quantum supremacy, sort of as defined. Yeah, definitely an interesting story in this topic of whether or not we've got quantum supremacy. I mean, it's such a debatable thing, quantum supremacy. It's like on AI, we always debate about the Turing test and have we achieved it. And quantum uh, computing is still esoteric enough or so far away from being general purpose that I, I personally think any take on quantum supremacy uh, is is maybe a bit premature since what we have here is a really specialized case of of one application. But you know, nevertheless, it's it's interesting to see the work going on. But you know, th- it, we're going to have a debate about this, and and I think in fact we already got a competitive response saying, "Hang on, that's, that's you're not a quantum supremacy yet." Is that right? Oh, it, it's you're absolutely right. I mean, first of all, there's a whole camp that says chasing quantum supremacy is a fool's errand, that it's really just a, a trick and that it doesn't really show anything uh, important. That aside, um, as soon as, as Google had published his paper, IBM said, look, you know, we've got another way to simulate it. And we've run um, our piece of it on on Summit. And we think we could do the same thing you that uh, you're saying um, in two and a half days on summit. They didn't actually do it in two and a half days, but they did a simulation that said they could. And so if that's the case, then you, you know, that's hardly 10,000 years. You certainly haven't de- demonstrated quantum supremacy. And the community, of course, is, uh, takes great glee in these kinds of things, the quantum community that looks very closely at it. And they're arguing back and forth. And I think there's a good deal of, um, a validity to IBM's claim. I mean, the truth is it's always been kind of a moving target. Classical systems get better. The algorithms get better. So even as quantum computing reaches a milestone here and there, you know, classical tends to catch up. That's been the history. That said, um, there is an emerging consensus that, look, over time, because of the nature of entanglement, if you can actually do that, um, that quantum computing will win this race. But right now, it's, it's not clear that this was a definitive victory. So the real question is, was this important? And the answer is yes, it was important. Um, it is another uh, incremental advance in the technology and engineering trying to reach quantum computing. These things work at near zero Kelvin degrees. The, you know, the engineering challenge alone is, is very difficult. In building this system, they have wires that go down to connect to the qubits. Those, those wires must be intact, obviously, and they go through several different temperature regions you know, as they get down to the near zero Kelvin. And it turned out that uh, the mounting bump for the wire on one of them uh, broke. And so instead of having a 54-bit qubit, they had a 53-bit qubit, yeah. uh, cubic, excuse me. And anyway, they were able to still run the exercise successfully. So clearly, there's lots to go. Um, a better measure may be this emerging concept, not so new really, of, of quantum advantage. And that's uh, IBM, Google, Microsoft, all of the players sort of have embraced this. And that's the idea of doing something practical sufficiently better on a quantum computer that it's with, it's worth switching to a quantum computer rather than trying to do it on a classical computer. That's really what's next in store. And we don't know even when that's going to be. Yeah. And the idea with the qubits that we've talked about previously on this podcast is that with every additional qubit you add, there's a, a two to the nth improvement in in the size of the solution space you can explore, which is why there's been so much emphasis in these low 50s, getting from the from two to the 50th to two, two to the 55th, every qubit doubling how much of a solution space you can explore. That's why we've been targeting this notion of quantum supremacy 
supremacy around around that level and and so much effort going into that that size of a system right now in the in the quantum area. Yeah, a quick addition to that, and that is the error correction is such a big part of adding these. It takes roughly twenty to fifty physical qubits, additional qubits, um, to um, to make one logical qubit that's that's really predictable and a common uh, the way we're thinking about error correction today so if you tried to do that imagine having a thousand qubits each one of those requiring 50 additional physical qubits to be reliable so there's a long way to go um and but we're moving and so this was an important achievement without question whether it was quantum supremacy you know arguable um we'll see Google was in the news another way this week in HPC as we'll hit one more quick story. Intersect 360 Research released its market sizing for the hyperscale market. This is cloud scale companies or internet scale companies that have web facing application infrastructures that scale arbitrarily along with the internet. The tier one hyperscalers are, are companies that are well known in the market. Companies like Google, Microsoft, Facebook, uh, Amazon and the like. And we've in fact sized 11 companies that spent over a billion dollars each in, in IT infrastructure last year for their hyperscale infrastructure. And Google was the king of them all. Normally, we wouldn't call out any individual company like this, but really they got into a category under themselves where Google became the first company to spend over $10 billion in a single year. So that was really quite notable. Overall, we're seeing growth in the hyperscale market to where it's reached $57 billion in 2018. I think your observation that, uh, again, in the report that the hyperscale market could cross $100 billion within five years is, is amazing. You know, we used to think of them only as consumers, and indeed they are IT consumers, but today they've gone far beyond that and are, and are technology innovators and inventors themselves. Just uh, it's, it's an important place to, um, to watch closely, I think. I'm curious about your take on the segment. So is this growth that we're seeing uniform, and do you think this will continue with the same sort of dramatic rate? Yeah, what we've really seen is is not just that it was big growth of over 30% uh, overall in hyperscale, but that it continues to consolidate into the top tier, even though hyperscale on the whole is growing. Uh, tiers two and three, the, the companies that are spending under a billion dollars a year, which is still quite a lot, uh, but those tiers are shrinking as more of it consolidates into this top tier of only a very few companies. And in the near term, we expect that growth to continue. It really comes from two factors. Some of it is enterprise computing that now migrates over to cloud-based services. A big portion of it is new services created as more consumers access internet-driven apps or content on their phones or other or televisions, other devices. So you get things like social media, maps, uh, uh, content streaming, any of these things that we do so much more now than before all drives hyperscale infrastructure. Now, in the longer term, and we discuss this in the report, it's interesting to note that it is rare in human history that we've seen so much power concentrated into so few companies in the world. It has happened in the course of human history, but it tends not to be long-term sustainable. This is the first time this has really happened at this level in the information era. So we do think about in the forecast what would it take for there to be a, a worldwide political shift or shift in public opinion 
that would then uh, limit the hyperscale company's ability to do business under the same sort of business model going forward. That's the big cautionary sign that's out there for the hyperscale market. Not in the very near term, but could happen, uh, start to happen by the end of the five-year forecast. So that'll be another trend that we'll continue to watch in our research as we head on toward Denver. John, thanks a lot for joining me for another episode of This Week in HPC, and thanks to you for tuning in. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. For more information, visit intersect360.com.